Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode three of what I think I'm calling the Resonant Deep Dive, where we go and get an interviewer, an interview, a YouTuber on, and we, uh, yeah, we just talk about some things. Episode three, we've got on Chad, Chad Man, Chad Topia, the one Chad. How are you doing, mate? I am not too bad, not too bad. You know, just finished a day's work, but working from home, people will say, yeah, it's a bit of a struggle. No, no. To be honest, I'm a computer <laughs> nerd. I'm sitting on my YouTube desk. I'm working from home. The commute is now, instead of 45 minutes drive, it's six feet walk. So that's not bad. I can deal with it. I think, I think especially for us people that are used to sitting at computers all day, I think, I think it hasn't been too bad. My mum, who was a teacher, she oh. is like, she's, she messaged me like, how do you spend more than like two hours sitting at a computer? <laughs> she just can't cope with it. <laughs> But I think, have you fared all right during lockdown? Yeah, it's it's not been too bad. Um, I will say that I've drunk more wine in the last year and a half than I've drunk previously in the last 15 years. I see. So <laughs> that's, that tends to be just bursts. It's not like constant. Mm. But generally speaking, yeah, it's it's it's... It's not too bad, you know, in the world. I mean, the only thing, obviously, is the where how when you do go out, we have to wear the mask, and I put gloves on as well because I'm technically an at-risk person. Yeah, and well, so, and as a uh, fellow glasses wearer, wearing a mask is the worst thing. Trying to with jets <laughs> upwards, you know. But I just don't. I don't bother wearing glasses to the shop because I just like I can't be bothered to do the whole because th- I have headphones on, so I can't be able to take the headphones off take the glasses off, put the mask on, put the headphones back on every time. I tend to put like the glasses down here and then just take them and put them on quickly for what I need to do and then take them off and yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's an almighty great faff, but considering the alternative, it's a minor niggle. That's that's very true. So as a YouTuber, how did you like start? How did you get into it? Do you want to tell people a little bit about what your channel is and then how it really started on YouTube? Um. Yeah, my channel is basically, I specialize in sort of live game commentaries of large battles, specifically um, uh, Mountain Blade, but mostly Napoleonic Wars, also Native. I've done some Battle Lord. I've also done some professional stuff as well uh, for Battlefield 4 and uh, commentating on some of the ESL as well. Um, my YouTube channel started sort of 2012. I think my friend Malekith Gardi had just started a channel and you know i'd been thinking about it um but my time in commentary actually started probably when you were still a glint in the milkman's eye um back in (laughs) 1999 i was born in 1999 (laughs) see what i mean and essentially what it was is i've been watching um a game called tribes tribes Mm. star siege tribes back in 1999 was that the first video you have on your channel that game um it's not the first video but it's one of the videos is on there um and essentially i was watching a um, a station called tsn tribe shoutcast network and they were doing live commentaries on matches and then what you could do is you could if need be because this was all audio there was nothing video at all Mm. you would literally listen into the the broadcast live and then later on if you wanted to you could get the demos from the players and then watch the demo while you were listening back to the recording, for example. I see. So it was essentially radio, really, radio commentary. And I wanted to get into that, and I did. 
I ended up uh, creating my own station, the Euro Shoutcast Network, with another guy who hosted the servers. Because what would happen is everyone would use Winamp, and I would use the Shoutcast broadcast plugin to broadcast to a target server. Everyone else would then connect to that target server, and that would stream the audio. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up doing that for about a year, and then ended up joining TSN, ended up doing things like... I've casted Counter-Strike, I've casted COD 1, I've casted COD 2, um, obviously Tribes, multiple Tribes versions. Um, it's just one of these things that I've, all, I've done since forever. And when I was thinking about YouTube, Malik had said to me, well, why don't you commentate on one of our siege battles? I said, okay. Never played the game before, so I bought the game, installed it, and commentated on one of the, the first 77 YI siege battles. The thing I remember most about that video is that there was a graphic glitch in it that basically made it look yeah. like it was all crisscross on the uh, shadows, which I fixed for the next one. And essentially have just gone on from there with uh, broadcasting. People ask me to broadcast uh, competitions. I get requests to just record line battles. And it's just gone on from there, really. And I play all sorts of other games on my channel as well occasionally do opinion pieces stuff like that i'm looking into doing more of those i've got one on the burn at the moment which i'm in the process of writing up so uh, as it's writing a script that you this is the problem that uh, george lucas had you can write it but can you write it so it can be said mm, the, the, the two are very disparate. i always find when i come when I do script stuff, especially like a few months ago when that was basically everything I was doing, I'd come to record it and then I just think none of this actually makes sense in any sort of sentences. It's sort of just mind farts onto a paper. And then I sort of have to like stop the recording and be like, okay, what am I actually trying to say? here? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is, is not only what you're trying to say, but the way in which you're trying to say it, because I mean, I've done, I've done voiceovers and all sorts of things like that. And one of the things you learn from that is intonation, how mm. to specify, put like a emphasis on certain points that you want to. And it's it becomes quite a bit of sort of oral gymnastics, if you pardon the expression. That sounds really wrong, but <laughs> you know what I'm saying. It's it's not as straightforward in the same way that casting is not as straightforward as some people think. Yeah, definitely not. Speaking about casting, if we go back further where did that sort of that passion and love for talking over and commentating start was it were you one of those kids that used to sit in front of the tv and talk over everything that was going on and stuff like that no it's never that bad i remember uh, messing around with a friend of mine when we were sort of like 18 19 recording sort of joke sketches and stuff on the audio on the tape recorder and then playing it back and we thought we were hysterical um probably <laughs> the rest of the world may not have agreed with that but i don't know um even as a kid, I, I've been on stage and done stuff, things like that. I mean, it's just, it's always been a part of me. The thing, the thing that is the most ironic about it, now, you know, obviously, we've known each other for a while. You know how much I talk, as this recording will probably show. <laughs> we'll see about the time code on Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're now into hour 63. Um, and basically, uh, I was born with a cleft palate, which means the roof of the mouth wasn't actually properly formed, so I had to mm. have an operation when I was a baby. And for a while, my parents were not sure if I'd be able to talk at all. Really? Yeah. And my mum kind of summed it up in one word, in one sort of sentence. She said, yeah, 
first we weren't sure if he would be able to talk at all and then we realized he wouldn't bloody shut up <laughs> and that's been it really so this verbal this verbal sort of sense of uh diarrhea of words coming out has always been a thing because of my mum and my dad i've always been quick with the comebacks and just the things off the top of my head i did a uh sports broadcast with my dad on radio one occasion and i was able to do everything off the top of my head just from reading the paper in between the advert breaks yeah. on subjects to talk about so i'm good at operating you know, doing things, I mean, you know, as well as I do, if you're doing a live broadcast, well, you may not have done one, but the hardest thing to do is suddenly when they're saying, oh, oh, it's not working, you need to fill. Yeah, just talking, and talking is much harder than people think, just randomly talking. The, the, the discussions that I've had in fill airtime have been to say that they are bizarre is a galactic understatement. <laughs> but they're often I mean, some of the best conversations, the most interesting ones. Yeah, I mean, I remember having a conversation about how come is it only the Hulk shirt shorts don't tear? Oh, I think that is a that's a well known theory that I think no one's ever worked out. I don't exactly. think is there any canon explanation for that? I don't know. Maybe there. Maybe he's wearing lycra shorts underneath for in case of sort of <laughs> Hulk related bursting. But, but they're, they're depicted as like denim every time he wears them. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Or maybe they're just sort of set to split in only a certain way. I don't know. But either way, think, you know, <laughs> these, are, these are questions the universe needs to answer. Mm. And so you, you talk about anything off the top of your head when you're trying to fill for time. And so depending on who you're talking to means you, you can talk about the game, you can talk about the game, you've just seen the games that are coming up, all that kind of stuff. And that, I think, is where a lot of the... The practice and the professionality can come from having those moments where you can keep the audience engaged in what you're saying because in theory i mean i i, I even i even actually did an interview for bbc click and i said a good commentator should be able to make a car park interesting yes definitely or a traffic jam when it comes to commentators were there any people that you sort of idolized and sort of wanted to try and replicate that style? Or was it sort of you just working it out on your own and coming up with a way to do it? Kind of working it out on my own, but there were some guys who did it, who are the original TSN guys. There were two guys called Wonder Dog and Beatstick. Uh, two guys um, who were, you know, one was basically completely hyper and over the top. And um, the other guy who was a very, very dry, very sarcastic, but also very quiet and very calm mm. and they, they were like chalk and cheese the two of them but they made a superb pair when they were commentating my personal favorite would be a guy who was known online as pub night he is consistently i would say the funniest guy i've ever seen broadcast consistently but also switched on to you know aspects around what's going on things of that nature he's just I used to literally stay up until two o'clock in the morning to tune in live to his show when he did them, and then basically uh, go to the go and get a bacon roll on the way home and disappear into a shroud of Red Bull <laughs> to uh, try and make it up for the next day. But yeah, I mean, I think Pub Night, I think, was one of those, and because I have such good memories of that, I have all of their recordings on my hard drive from when they started. <laughs> wow. 
yeah and there's some absolute classics in there some really funny moments i mean you know some of these guys i've also worked with demon on a couple of times wonderful guy extremely talented extremely professional you know and these and i've also worked with uh, uh dog but who uh, now works for creative assembly yeah so i recognize that name yeah. and so he was he was my battlefield forecaster partner he was the he was basically the brains and i was just the brawn you know just the talking <laughs> i did all the talking he did the uh sensible intelligence stuff mm. yeah and so it's it's just a case of being inspired by other people really around you for me that sort of urge to try and be better but also try and find your own particular style which i think i have but i am also my own worst critic so i always watch my videos back and think if i repeat words more than once uh, it bugs me to the point where i try not to do it again hmm. what i what i'm interesting to know is a lot of people that get into the commentating and shoutcasting sort of thing there's sort of i don't know for me, at least from where I look, it seems like there's a split. There's either games or sports sort of in the main, like big places. What, why did you go towards games? Was sport ever your thing or not really? Sport, yes, no. I mean, I was into swimming. You can't really... Uh, swimming and gymnastics is what I did as a kid. Yeah, with swimming, yeah. there's only so much you can say about exactly. the person yeah, going yeah. back and forth. <laughs> exactly. Um, although saying that, I mean, one of the, one of the things, the slight aside... You know, when they see you do the diving and you watch the camera and the camera actually goes down with the diver, mm. that system was made by the same, same guy who invented the Steadicam, of which I have one. I see. <laughs> yeah, and I've been trained on them. So, uh, but that aside, it was case of I was always into games, played games, arcade games as a kid, um, still play them now when I can, just from nostalgia value. Mm -hmm. Remember spending £50 in Trocadero in like three hours. On one occasion when i went there with my friends um i've always loved arcade games and so to me games was more of a simpatico connection i enjoyed sport but you know i enjoy snooker you don't get a huge amount of high-speed commentaries on snooker <laughs> not massively you, you, you no. mentioned earlier that it was sort of malekith that got you into casting mountain blade stuff um how did you you two meet and how did you sort of become associated because i think most people would associate you with the 77y if they're going to associate you with some sort of regiment how, how did that come about yeah um it's it's kind of funny actually because i told this story at malachi's wedding i was one of the best men at his you wedding were there. I was, right yeah um and i kind of i had to have to i have to preempt it because I, I, you know, the little precursor before we start. No, I was not investigated by Operation U Tree. Just want to make that clear. <laughs> I am excited to see where this story goes now. <laughs> so essentially, I met Mal on the internet when I was 27 and he was 13. I see. Okay, okay. that's <laughs> that's where it comes. Now, in. exactly. See what I mean? But we were playing a game called Air Attack on Wireplay, and we just happened to face off against each other quite often mutual respect for opponent, all that kind of stuff. And you just happen to chat. I had no idea he was 13, but during the <laughs> Sorry, of that's just what <laughs> we're talking I about know. operation U tree. That seems like the quote. I had no idea. Exactly. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. I didn't know. He had, <laughs> yeah. I didn't know he wasn't legal. Um, but yeah. <laughs> oh, so yeah, I don't, that's the thing you see. I mean, I don't know if you can groom someone for online gaming, but anyway, um, 
so essentially he and I just chatted, we became friends and we just played together quite often. And over the course of many years, we would play other games together and it's just gone on from that really. So he and I have been, you know, close friends for quite some years. And uh, yeah, so that's literally, you know, I was always talking to him about playing games together because when we play games together, he is the, he is the intelligent thoughtful strategic one and i'm just the loud obnoxious one that yeah charges i think in you get that from me. both of your contents <laughs> so yeah that's how i got to know malekith and how i got to know the 77y and off the back of that how i got to know the entire napoleonic wars and mountain blade community so did he just Im invite you to, were you part yeah. of the regiment or were you just sort of on the side? No, he just said, did you want to, I, I said, uh, I'm looking to commentate some games. You got any ideas? And he goes, why don't you commentate one of our sieges? Mm -hmm. And so the first few commentaries of Mountain Blade that I did were for the 77Y, but other people from other regiments were enjoying it and watching it. And then they said, would you commentate on one of our line battles? And I said, yeah, sure, happy to. I was not, you know, I was not tied into 77Y specifically. And uh, it just went from there. And next thing you know, loads of people are asking me to commentate on their line battles because for me, when I do the line battles, uh, I think everyone's wonderful. I don't, I don't root for one team or the other. I think they're all fantastic and they all look very handsome in their uniforms. And I will then equally laugh either side if they die in a horribly ridiculous manner, which does happen. Multiple cannonballs, all that kind of stuff. You know, the, 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 the officer hunting cannonballs, which were a common thing in Napoleonic Wars. So it means that I can make fun of all of them, but also commentate on epic moments that they have with a sort of a semblance of impartiality. How how much would you say that sort of contributed to your growth? Because I think most people that are watching this, and well, me specifically as well, n knew about your channel from that. I remember being in these line battles. Like the first regiment I joined was the 41st. And I think there's a few videos that I've seen where they've been in battles that you commentated and I'd always like look for my name and stuff like that. And I was like, I think I was like 13, 14 years old. Oh, when was... <laughs> but no, but I remember at the time, like I was terrified of those like events and regiments. Like the 41st was the first one I joined when I was about 13. And I remember the, uh, the leader, the major would always like get angry at me because I had a really high pitched voice at that time. And that that leader was Major Marx, who went on to develop Prime and Load. So oh, right. oh wow. So, so yeah, it's kind of weird how that comes right around. But how would you sort of say the main belt bulk of your channel growth came around the Napoleon it was? Definitely, without a doubt. I mean, obviously, there was the the biggest video on my channel is actually for a native battle. Native, isn't that's like eight hundred k now, or is it? Yeah, about like that. that. Yeah, which yeah. is continually staggers me, even to this day. Um, but it was I was just I just enjoyed commentating on events. You know, it, it was just it was just fun, and there, because there were silly moments, because there always is in Napoleon the Wars and Mountain Blade players, especially, there's a certain nervous energy that's ticking away at them. Mm that they've got to do something while they're standing there twiddling their arms or waiting for something to happen. So there's, there's never ever something where they'll be standing there doing nothing. They'll be either head banging or they'll be punching each other or something will be happening. There'll be a so private never... that accidentally team kills the officer. Exactly. <laughs> they were it's the never best a... Yeah. It's never a dull moment and that's part of the fun of it. But yeah, I would say that 
Mountain Blade generally has contributed to a large majority of the size of the channel as it stands at the moment. Can you give some of your highlights for the Napoleon It Wars events? I think one of my favorite ones for your videos was an older siege battle and there was a river going across with the small rowboats and they were famous for being death traps. And it was just a whole regiment gets into a rowboat, it gets hit by a cannonball and they all go down. What are some of your best moments in Napoleon It Wars battles? Um, yeah, there are some moments like that where, um, uh, for some reason, Malekith had some kind of irrational fear of bagpipes. So I always <laughs> used to play bagpipes and he'd come out and persecute me. That was always entertaining. I think one of the funniest is actually from a Mountain Blade mod called North and South based yeah. on the American Civil War. And, um, there was two, two that I can think of specifically. One was where, um... Inkle, who was one of the developers of the mod, was playing Abraham Lincoln, and he was the only man left, and he came riding over on his horse, and it was one man versus Abraham Lincoln, and he's like, come on, I'll take you on, I'll take you on. Abraham Lincoln threw an apple at him and killed him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that just moment, which, yeah, I had hysterics over that moment as it happened. I can't find the video. I need to find it again if I can. Um, the other one was one in the Napoleonic Wars where it was a... I think it was a uh, one of the guys says, yeah, I'll take you on 1v1, all the rest of it. And it was outside of a field. He comes charging into 1v1 just as he's about 10 feet away from his opponent. His teammate kills him with a flying cannonball. <laughs> There's, I think it might be on Malekith's uh, channel, but is, isn't it like the, the biggest cannonball kill in yeah. the Paralympic Wars or something like that? 24 people with one cannonball. See, I don't... see of Doomfinger. That's the thing about Mountain Blade and specifically in Napoleonic Wars. I feel like that wouldn't happen in any other game. And I think that's what really like brought people to it, especially me, because I was watching those videos like, this can't be real people, right? And it and it is. And it's mad. Did you and Malakid sort of work? Because I know you did a few like co-commentaries and stuff together. Did you sort yeah. of, was it a plan to sort of just grow together and make videos with each other in that way? Yeah, yeah well, yes and no. I mean, he's always... His, his, his some of the games he likes i may not necessarily you know may not blow my skirt up so to speak uh, and vice versa um you know but it was never a sort of plan to grow together it was just a case of do what you enjoy and go from there i mean malekith obviously got a lot of uh support from his uh mountain blade stuff the warband and uh, all the rest of it and but, you know, he he also had a regiment to run as well, and that was a different kind of pressure and different kind of uh, expectation. I didn't have to worry about that. And also, that's one thing I never wanted to do. I never wanted to join a regiment because then all my regiment, all my videos would be, oh, he's looking at it from the point of view of this regiment and therefore slagging us off. So to remain impartial meant I had to stay out of regiments and the associated drama uh, that comes with it, as we all know, on online communities. So we never really grew at the same sort of speed because I specifically did my commentaries and sort of games that I, I liked, sort of small games, all that kind of stuff, obviously the Battlefield 4 stuff. You know, one of my favorites was the original Theme Hospital, which was immensely good fun. And so we kind of... Our channels sort of started from the same sort of, um, you know, the same sort of tree, but have just branched off in different directions. Yeah. One of the one of the things that I think is interesting how 
for a lot of people that I've noticed on YouTube, and let me let me know what your thoughts are on this. But in terms of the actual YouTube content, I don't feel like Bannerlord had the same impact on YouTubers, sort of, or at least community that Warband did. And that might just be down to the fact that there isn't private servers and there aren't those community events. But how do you feel, sort of, that Mountain Blade when it came with Bannerlord? How how was that different for when it came recording? Because you don't, you don't seem to be doing as many Bannerlord stuff as as you did with Warband. Yeah, the primary. The primary thing is the private servers and those mm. events. That's what, that is what uh, most of it came from because these people, they hide, they got their own servers. They would run events on a regular basis. They still run events on a regular basis. And it's just without that, there's that, you know, people aren't interested in seeing their, um, their exploits, so to speak, uh, being recorded and commentated on and all the rest of that. And I think, that's probably one of the biggest, as I see it, failings of Mountain Blade Bannerlord at this current moment yeah. is the lack of private servers to essentially invigorate the community and encourage them to uh, to basically hold these events and uh, so therefore other people can cover them, they can release videos of themselves playing in it, all that kind of stuff. It seemed It seemed a little bit short-sighted in my opinion. I 100% agree. I was, I remember like I was making videos, well, obviously I was making videos before Bannerlord even came out, but in some of the videos I was talking about how surely there's going to be private servers. It would be stupid of them to not release private servers, maybe not initially on release, but a few weeks after, maybe even like a month or two after. And I mean, it's been over a year now and they've mentioned that it's something that they're working on, but we have no idea release date. And I don't know, it feels... Mountain Blade 2 Bannerlord feels different as a game. I think for me, Warband had that warm, like nostalgia sort of community feel. And I don't, I just don't think Bannerlord has re replicated that community feeling. Not yet, no. I mean, part of it is because of, uh, the, you know, going into battles means going in via matchmaking. And I tend to find mm. that matchmaking removes a lot of the choice as to where you go, because at least with uh, Bannerlord, or playing uh, Warband, you could actually choose which server you were going on to. Those, that, those kind of communities and uh, sort of connections grow up as uh, people play on the same server together regularly. Exactly yeah. the same thing has happened on every single game I've played. There would be a list of maybe five servers that you would play on regularly because you knew the people on it, you knew it was admin, you knew it was looked after, and you knew it would be fun. And right now, without that, it means that they've kind of taken the wind out of the release of Bannerlord and that mm. they could have made use of that to kind of fuel continued interest um, and uh, everything else that's going on relating to that. Yeah, I do. I, I, I've thought about this quite a lot recently when it like with making videos. I'd love to hear your opinion on it. It's whether it was a good idea in the, the long run to release into early access because... I mean, I love the game, like the single players of stays in. I have so much fun, especially with mods. Like, I think what Banlord has done, technically speaking, with letting the community, even in the, the early stages of modding tours, what the community has done is mental. And sort of like the Banlord Online mod blows me away how someone's managed to do something like that. But I'm very happy that it came into early access because I got to play it. But I don't know if it was a good idea in the long run, because as you say, 
when Bannerlord gets a full release date and it comes with private servers maybe and it comes with full modding support and it's like the full game, will anyone really care? <laughs> will people have moved on to something else by then? Because gamers are notoriously fickle in my experience. I'm not necessarily sure if it will be people moving on. I think Bannerlord will have that longevity that Warband will have, but it's, I don't know, it was that massive build-up and excitement to Bannerlord and then like it came out as a, really good single player experience but it didn't come out as the full game and do, yeah. do, what do you think about that decision in the long term whether that was a good idea or not um the thing is it's difficult for us to really judge because we don't know what the uh development process has been well, for yeah, banner lord obviously it's been in development technically speaking for eight years and so we don't know how many times they've gone back and redone th done things and so on and so forth Speaking just from a sort of community side of things, um, obviously people were hungering for it, but I think it might have been better if they'd left it, waited a little bit longer until they knew they could bring out private servers mm. so that they could bring it out, bring out the private servers and say, this is the state of the game at this current moment. Um, obviously, modding tools means that, I mean, there are some people out there who are so incredibly talented that you just want to give them all the tools they can just to go ahead and make whatever they want to do. You know, modders, when you think about it, look back at it, modders have been the lifeblood of so many gaming communities throughout the world. I mean, just look at Counter-Strike. That started off as a mod for Half-Life, you know? I mean, you know, 1.3, 1.6, then on to Counter-Strike Source, and it's still going and still very, very, very popular. And part of the reason for that has been the core gameplay has been solid and also the support for the game has been there so that they can do whatever they need to do with respect to that particular game. And so I think it's a combination of two factors, the modding and the, the private servers, really, because modding also helps increase the hype because people are thinking, oh, right, when, when's the next, you know, North and South mod or, you know, when's the next Iron mod coming out or something along those lines, you know, because modders are just sitting there waiting to take control and do what they need to do. They just don't have some of the tools they need in order to do it. And, and I think that's the biggest, I think that's the biggest failing at the moment is that to give them what they want, give them what they want so that they can essentially sell your game for you, which is what modding will do. Speaking of modding, I know you saw this tweet because I think you liked it. Um, it was a tweet from Joe Forham. Uh, I've got him up here. He's a, he's a podcaster, but he tweeted the other day and I shared it and a lot of people shared it about modding in games. And it was specifically The Witcher, how someone had put in extra story bits in The Witcher and redone the voice acting and stuff like that. And his his take on it was modding has gone too far. You're now ruining games for the developers. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think that's not true because, I mean, if you look at, for example, modders who did um, a huge amount of work on Battlefield 2 for the mod Desert Combat, they ended up becoming Battlefield 3 developers. Whole fascinations of war, similar. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. The point is, is that I just think of it as a large canvas and all the modders are doing is just touching up the finer detail, adding to, you know, so you've got a great big huge vista or thing on the canvas, and they're just touching up little tiny bits just to put a little bit of extra 
detail in the back of it. And it's, you know, it's not unfair to say that there have been some games where modders have fixed the flipping games where then mods haven't been able to. I mean, you mm. just look at the problem that occurred recently with the uh, loading times on Grand Theft Auto Five. Yeah. That actually got fixed by a modder. They got and, it down to like a few seconds or something like yeah, that. It yeah, yeah. And, and, and they gave him 10 grand to say thank you, you know? And I don't think that's enough at all. <laughs> maybe, well, that's maybe like not, one of the biggest Maybe problems. not. <laughs> But the point is, is the fact that it behooves you as a development team to make use of those people as a resource to either help you improve your game or to add extra bows to the, or strings to the bow, so to speak, you know, because at the end of it, as long as it's based on the base game, they will still need to buy it. And so there'll still be a revenue stream for yeah. your game for quite some time. Well, there's, I mean, there was a uh, tale was talking about how moddable Banlaw would be. And I think this is with most games coming out now that really want to embrace mods is you can mod it as much as you want, uh, but they there's things in place to stop people from making a new game from it. Like you've, you physically can't take that and then sell it as a new game. So yeah, I, I don't think that. there are really any downsides to mods. It's, it's like you say with GTA five, that was free development. Like, I mean, they did pay him, but they didn't have to. They could have just no, gone like, well, that's that's then now. But then that also explains, you know, that kind of mentality that you have with a lot of modders where they see a problem and they want to fix it and mm. they're so doggedly determined to look into it so closely that they actually they figure out the problem and so eventually help you with respect to your game and, you know, the game playing experience, which is a term I absolutely detest. <laughs> um but yeah it's like oh when every time you get an update and it's like improving your experience it makes me want to headbutt my monitor especially anyway. if it's like tens of gigabytes and it takes ages to install and it's like well there's no real content here it's just a few patches and things like that <laughs> yeah but saying that to a certain degree we are to blame because we are wanting to play games in 4k and so therefore 4k resolution means bigger you know Figure, um textures all that kind of stuff and so therefore game size i mean i'm coming from the generation where i played elite on a single 520 floppy disk mm. Mm. you know <laughs> if anything i i wonder if you know with development because the size of development projects grow so big that has it made developers lazy to a certain degree where because you know back in the day they didn't have so much space to work with they had to find creative ways around it and try and making it as as small as it possibly can be obviously you know graphics was less of an issue around around those times but i just wonder from a development point of view how it changes things whether or not developers should have a longer cycle for the development of a game because at the moment it's about 18 to 24 months yeah well you say like developers getting lazy and like from an audio perspective like back in the day, obviously, because there was hardly any space to put games on, the audio was something that literally just had to be chiptune stuff, not because out of a stylized choice, but because they could only make beeps of certain frequencies because they couldn't fit anything else on. And then you go fast forward to now with Call of Duty Warzone, which is a hundred over a hundred gigabytes, and it comes out that the reason it's that size, a lot of the reason is because they just didn't bother to compress any audio. So it's just full FLAC files and WAV files yeah. that are taking up tens of gigabytes. 
But then you're saying now also, I mean, in the sort of earlier days, when you, uh, with, with some of the earlier uh, games that ran on PC, you would have the game on PC and then you'd have audio files like an audio CD on the game and it would play the music directly off the audio CD. Mm. Um, some of the games that I played just had, you never had to worry about things like copyright, which is one <laughs> of the things that has changed a lot. Uh, I mean, I remember playing one of my favorite games back in era 1999, 2000, maybe a little bit later than that, had probably the best game name ever in the history of the universe, but also was intensely in, uh, entertaining and fun. And it was called Wargasm. <laughs> what was that about? It was basically, it was tanks and it was helicopters and uh, it was basically just like full-on combat, like you'd have in Battlefield 3, that kind of stuff with a tank. Um, but around the time, it was done by a company called DID. They, and it was fantastic. You had epic music from, um, you know, from the likes of uh, Mozart and all the rest of it playing in the background while you're in the middle of a tank battle. <laughs> it's probably the most epic thing you could ever possibly hear. And the thing that's also funny is that I played that game online and won a competition online and was sent a, uh, sent a congratulatory T-shirt by the developers. And they just said on it, multiple wargasm. <laughs> My favorite See, ever T-shirt. That, that, I, I feel like that wouldn't happen anymore with games. No, games have to be so corporate. Yeah, and they have, they have to go to a specific guideline. And that was something that I wanted to talk to you about as someone that really grew up with games and as has played games since the early stuff as well what what are your thoughts on the way that the gaming industry has changed from this well as you mentioned it was just all about fun and passion and now it's come to the microtransaction everywhere trying to stop mm -hmm. modders from doing things putting stuff behind paywalls to a certain degree it's become more about control mm. control about what the experience the player has what they can do to change that experience and things related to that. Um, I think also, especially with YouTube, it's changed how they do music in games as well, because at the moment, still, um, there is an issue relating to music because the license to use music in a game is a different license to actually then broadcast it over YouTube. So it means that you can experience that game for yourself with the music that is copyrighted. But if you try and play that game and record it on YouTube, you'll get a copyright strike for it. And so as a result, what happens is music that gets used in games can also then have, once the period of the game being supported has passed, they sell those licenses on to other persons who then basically come down like a lead brick on somebody who has used that copyrighted music in a game that is dated like 2004 which has happened to me by the way mm. um and it's it's a difficult situation because now i think get a lot of a lot of developers should probably look to not only how their game is going to be played but also how their game is going to be covered uh with respect to uh, on social media, YouTube, all that kind of stuff, and maybe make certain decisions based on that, that they can, you know, use non-copyrighted music or they could own the license for that and so therefore won't sell it on to anyone else, that kind of thing. I think also 
with the increase in resources needed to run a lot of the modern games, um, it's it means that the PCs considerably have got faster and faster and faster and more memory hoggish, so to speak, in order to run some of these games to the point where part of the appeal, I think, of Mountain Blade was it ran on, I think, DirectX 7. Yep. <laughs> and so it, it was still chunky, but the point is that so many people could play it on their potato laptops and other stuff. I think that's and how everyone make... started in that game. <laughs> and and so as a result of that, because everybody doesn't have the highest possible spec PC, it means some of these games are unreachable to certain players. And so far, it, so and that means it artificially limits their player base. Mm, definitely. I think, yeah, I think especially with YouTube and gaming, there's always there's always been this weird fight between, I think it's sort of come to a middle ground now with game developers and YouTube and most of them are accepting it, but there's still, like Nintendo, still having a go at YouTubers because and I don't, I don't know what the effects of that would be on their sales, whether you, because obviously Nintendo is massive, but I think there's a whole market they're missing out with without letting people play on YouTube. That's the thing, because, I mean, I think to play stuff on Nintendo, you have to be partnered with Nintendo, and they take yeah. 50 or 70% of your uh, your uh, money in regard to that. And the thing is, is that the goodwill that a developer has with their gamers takes a long time to build up and can be lost in days. Yeah, And that... It, if putting, I suppose it's difficult to, it's easy for us to say because we're gamers, it's not a business to us. Well, not always, uh, unless you're a full time YouTuber and doing stuff like that, then it is a business, but it's slightly different. Mm. But it's more in every case of the goodwill of your subscribers, your viewer base, all that kind of stuff. You don't really want to take the chance to abuse it because it might just up and say, screw you. And yeah. that they're in danger of screwing over their own, their own people, to the point where people just say, you know what, it's not worth the effort anymore. And then all of a sudden, all the eyes that have been on their products up to that point will just disappear. And so all of a sudden they say, yeah, our sales have dropped, and this has dropped, and that has dropped. It's like, well, where's all our money gone? Well, it's because you weren't allowing people to shine a light onto your your game without taking all the money associated to it. I wonder how much of it is actually business and how much of it is just plain pure greed. Yeah. As a person on your channel that plays a bit of Total War, what is what sort of, I don't know if you've really been in with the community and the reaction for that, but talking about, I mean, game companies that have this massive raw fan base and then they make a bad game or they make a bad decision and it starts to drop off from the outside. What, what do you think of like the reaction to, I wouldn't say decline of the Total War franchise, but the more negative reactions to the more recent games? I think, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't disagree with that because I haven't thought that fondly of them myself. Uh, the way that, you know, later games have started using sort of hero characters, mm. uh, which kind of takes away for me part of the part of the appeal for me for Total War was you are the hero. You are basically taking You're command the of the armies. Sort of thing, yeah. You are the commander. And then by having heroes, you kind of take away some of that level of control. That's some kind of level of uh, intimacy that you have with the battles that are going on. 
that these are your troops. They're not just, you know, oh, right, my general screwed up or something along those lines. It's like, no, it's all on you. It's all on your strategy. It's all on how you decide to use your people, mm-hmm. where you tear where you go to tell you know guys i want you to use arrows at this time from this location all that kind of stuff but with heroes i feel sometimes tends to dilute that to the point where people are losing that sense of ownership that they have on the game that they're playing yeah what do you think in terms of the future of total War, what do you think they can where, where do you think they should go with that then to change get away from heroes get is it just heroes for you because i the last episode uh, that obviously hasn't been put up yet was um, with the Prince of Macedon. I don't know if you know him, but he's done a lot of oh, yes, I've spoken to War stuff. And his was a bit of a similar reaction. It, it didn't feel, it, it didn't quite describe it as the heroes, but it was like, it didn't feel the same. Like the way you played the mechanics, it didn't feel like you were a part of those battles. It felt more like you were spectating them. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very, that's a very fair argument. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, some of the battles that I've had on the Total War series have been absolutely immense, hysterically so, you know, with just ridiculous things occurring. Um, my personal favourite is still Napoleon Total War mm-hmm. because of the era, obviously. Although, I mean, even though it was a complete disaster when it came out, oh, Rome 2 I'm still playing now. I love Rome 2. I absolutely love I really Rome enjoy 2. that. I mean, to the point where the series that I stopped doing because people weren't watching it on the channel... I've played that campaign now through to completion about three times. <laughs> yeah, so far in room two, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and it's just it's just fun. Plus also now with the politics side of it in there, that you know, you've got to keep them sweet because otherwise they're just going to turn their back on you and start, you know, deserting. So, but I've always taken the opinion you can't desert if you're dead. <laughs> so, as you said, Napoleon is your favourite Total War. I've never really got into the musket ones. How would, as a more ancient warfare orientated fan of Total War, how how does the, the Napoleonic Wars really fare up? What does it do differently? Um, I think the atmosphere of it, the, the atmosphere of the battles, the carnage mm. that is generated as a result of these battles. Um, I mean, I've had a battle with sort of like six or 7,000 people um total and you know like they've lost four and a half thousand people in that battle and it shows on the battlefield so that level of carnage is actually quite intense and also you know the sort of there are certain aspects i keep pressing tab to show the you know the the massive menu and it's not there on the poland total war so um, there are certain mechanics that have come from the likes of Rome 2 and other games that I would like to see in a new Napoleon Total War, but I think it's just predominantly the era I like as well. Yeah, It's the early period of muskets, so they're not like massively accurate. You've got to get within 100 feet to kind of do any damage, but you know the cadence drumming and the marching all together is this big line. It's It's just it's quite intense to to play the battles can you know turn on on a simple issue of where you place your artillery how you move your cavalry the kind of things that you can do in the game are the sort of the classic strategies like you know the the diversionary force and then the 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 diversionary force is actually the attack force and all that kind of stuff those are kind of things that I learned from playing uh, Command and Conquer, the original one, believe it or not. 
So if you had to choose Total War's next game, would it be a Napoleon 2 for you? Without question. <laughs> what, do you, what would you want them to add into it? Um, no heroes. I think um, that's been a given. <laughs> yeah. The entire map, so the entire world to play mm. rather than just Europe. Um, and obviously, you know, a lot of the functions have been put in to Rome to, you know, like being able to move the entire army forward by using the arrow keys, all that kind of stuff, moving, um, sort of fine details of moving and controlling. Uh, that's the kind of stuff. It's just obviously being able to play that game, it would look amazing because, I mean, even the existing Napoleon Total War still looks amazing if you play it with Darth Mod. You can have up to 400-man armies mm -hmm. or 400-man regiments, I think, something like that, and it's just, it gets insanely immense. I mean, some of the battles I've had on there have been incredible, and there's obviously the, uh, the early days of artillery, so, you know, it's a lot... It's a lot in there that, that would make, I would think, for a good campaign. And obviously you've got such a an era from sort of 1815 and all that kind of stuff, or well, up to 1815, that era of uh, the Napoleonic Wars and all the battles that have occurred in between. But then that's not to say that you couldn't include, if you do a total domination, that you've then got to go and fight a battle for India. And, you know, I suppose it would be in cases merging empire total war and napoleon total war together yeah i think i think if they were going to do a sequel it'd have to be i don't know if they'd ever go napoleon 2 and empire 2 it'd either be one or the other or they'd yeah. probably go for some sort of merger are you by any chance a sharp fan god yes <laughs> i course, love yeah. that tv show it is I think it is some of the best, just like fun entertainment. There's nothing serious about it. It's just like campy fun sort of thing where it just, it's one of the things that you can just sit down and turn on an episode and you're always going to have an entertaining time. Yeah. There's also some, some quite somber, somber moments in there that oh, you know, make you realize the, the impact that war has on people and things of that nature. And there's moments like that that I tend to take away from it as uh, but yeah, sharp, fantastic. I haven't read any of the books, but the uh, the series are just absolutely phenomenally good. Uh, Sean Bean, who doesn't? I mean, it's finally great <laughs> to see a TV series in which Sean Bean doesn't bloody doesn't die every die. month, every year. <laughs> I I would really love for them to do a sequel. Or well, it's the problem is like I'd love to see more of it, but would it be a disaster if they came back to that thing? Yeah, that's the thing. I mean. Where would Sharp be? He was a colonel by the time the last saw the last series. I mean, Sean be Bean's general. getting old. <laughs> he probably wouldn't yeah, be able exactly. to do all the things he could then. Yeah, exactly. So he'd probably they'd have to probably do it from a general point of view, but then that would then bring in a certain level of more of the strategy rather than the individual soldier fighting. So it could yeah. be a potential potential be a interesting in that regard because then you'll see it on how the generals fight, and then you'll see it from the general's point of view see how his decisions would change where he just say, well, you know, I don't care about the men. We have to take this point because if we can't take this, then we can't do this and we can't do this. And then the whole thing falls apart. I think definitely for, as you mentioned, the more somber moments and like actual good, real emotive storytelling, I think it definitely could be a really unique angle for having it like that. Because I mean, in the Sharp series, the decisions he made were, I mean, they were decisions that would win or lose battles, but on a general yeah. scale, 
if you are in the seat that, you know, Napoleon was on or in that sort of high level, those decisions mm-hmm. are the ones that could really have impacts on the stories. Yeah, absolutely. Have you seen the uh, the film Waterloo? Of course I have seen Waterloo. It's a brilliant movie. And and that shot of the cavalry charge where it pulls back with a helicopter and mm-hmm. there is just thousands and thousands of troops in squares. And it's not and CGI. It, and it's no <laughs> and it's not CGI. And it's like, oh my God. Can you imagine being a helicopter pilot flying a cameraman <laughs> watching that? I mean, just just jaw dropping considering the period. I mean, you know, it's just it's just a staggeringly good film and all the all the uh, cavalrymen doing all their stunts and things like that, you know, because they train mm. the horses. If you pull on the right rein or the left rein, they literally lie down, and that's how they, that's how the stunts. You oh, see really? the stunts horses, yeah. So I've always wondered ever... how they do dying horses without injuring have you, them. Have you ever seen the film uh, Blazing Saddles? I haven't. No. Okay, you need to see that. Okay, because in that is a moment with a horse. You can see them how they make the horse lie down. But beware, it's not one to watch with the family. Okay, <laughs> I see. Just so you know. It's just something about especially Waterloo, and um, I'm sure you're aware of the YouTube channel History Buffs, who's done mm-hmm. videos on Waterloo and stuff. It's something about oh, yeah. especially watching his video and all the behind the scenes and the background of everything, seeing a film where what you're seeing is what's happening. You're not... Yeah. Because, I mean... Avengers Endgame, one of the most brilliant moments, I think, on TV. I mean, in Don't cinema. Spoil it. It goes... <laughs> we'll get on so to that. Everyone's, in a bit. everyone's watched it by now, I think. <laughs> but yeah, one's most brilliant moments. And it's great, but afterwards, you know that they're doing it on a green screen or they're doing it in a volume or something like that. But seeing that charge in Waterloo, like, what you can see yeah. through the lens is what those people are seeing through their eyes. There's something a bit yeah. different about that. Yes. Well, the thing is, if anything, I think it's when they do stuff like that on blue screen, you're closer to it. Mm. It's more personal. It's more intense, but it lacks scale. And so when you actually see it being done with all those horses and the time period, you realize, holy shit, that's an awful lot of people who had to do that. And, you know, you think about who got hurt doing that. Was anybody hurt? Was any horses injured as a result of doing that? Because think about how many times they had to rehearse it as well. Well, exactly. It was filmed with the Red Army, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But just think about things like that because blue screen is fantastic to give you the ability to, you know, visualize worlds you couldn't necessarily have in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, via the CGI set extensions, all that kind of stuff. But it also takes away from some of the the feeling of immenseness that came with the films of that era yeah. and just films of that type. I mean, you know, you start to look back before that with clear, uh, yeah, Cleopatra and stuff like that. It's just, it's a different way of filmmaking. Filmmaking in this, I mean, I have a massive interest in filmmaking anyway. Um, but filmmaking has to evolve over the course of time, make use of new technologies. I mean, yep. just look at what they did with Star Wars, you know, the all the blue screen, as well. motion control stuff. Um, yeah, all the other stuff as well. I mean, you know, like, for example, the uh, the the, start, the first trilogy, uh, not the, well, sorry, the, the one, two, three trilogy, 
Uh, that was the first <laughs> ones that were filmed on predominantly digital cameras. Yeah. And so this is the kind of thing where the film industry has to keep up to date and it enables a lot of things to occur, but also the problem that some filmmakers have fallen into is overcrowding the screen, mm. giving you sensory overload with too much stuff that you can't possibly see. And so therefore it gets lost in the, just the sheer, almost like in the middle of a windstorm, you know, you can't see everything that's going on around you. You just have to focus on one thing. I think we are somewhat in a weird way with the advancement of technology, how it's got better and better, almost going back to what we were speaking about with everything you see through the lens is actually happening with the Mandalorian and their volumetric cube sort of thing where they project onto an LED around them mm -hmm. and they're actually like, they can see, the actors can see it. And it's almost like going back to what it was before, but just using technology to do that. And game engines being used, Unreal 4 being, yeah, or Unreal absolutely. 5 being used to, with VR headsets to put cameras and things. But then think of it, I mean, you like you're saying, going from uh, blue screen, green screen to that, means that also from the point of view of an actor you know what you're looking at in the mm. background you know you can see you can't you don't have to say oh my god what a wonderful vista and it's just a blue screen you've got no bloody idea <laughs> whereas if you can actually see it so therefore it makes the acting easier to give over the impression of scale and impact and things of that nature so i think primarily the part of the reason they did it that way is to to be able to make the series for a lot less money than it would have cost to do it any other way. And that's, I think, is part of the big problem that's affecting games and also the film industry is the amount it's costing to make these things now because of the amount of work that's got to go into it that is getting to the point where it's difficult to ensure that you can make a film or a game to the required standard and it not cost you 100 to $200 million. Yeah, and especially with streaming services now, I think Netflix revealed that in 2020 they spent 17 billion on original content. And like people will be like, oh, just spend less, but they can't because their original content's the only thing that's bringing people back because every day they're losing licenses for Disney shows, for Sony's about to bring out a new streaming service, for HBO stuff and things like that. So they need to make original stuff, but it's so expensive. But yeah, that, but also that's the other problem is the fact that all of a sudden they're jumping on this bandwagon of saying, well, okay, right, where these people are making money from the streaming service and all of a sudden we want all that money. So it becomes about greed again. Yep. So in other words, it's like, oh, if I want to watch this series, I've got to be, uh, I've got to be on Disney Plus. But if I want to watch this series, I've got to be on HBO Max. If I want to watch this series, then I need to be on CBS Max or whatever. And you end up being signed on to about 15 different platforms just so you can watch the films that you want to watch. Yeah. Whereas on channels, watching, you know, back in the days of four channels, if you wanted to see something, you had to be there to watch it. Yeah. What was I mean, what sort of your thoughts on the balance between that? Because you have that issue and I am I have intentionally fallen victim to it. I have pretty much every streaming service just because I love watching movies but it is an issue and it will carry on being an issue and keep growing. Like I said, Sony's about to bring one out as well, which I mean, I was talking to the guy in John Lewis cause I was looking at TVs and he was like, it's going to be like 15 quid a month on top of everything else. And I like, just 
just not a problem. And when HBO Max comes to the UK, that's another one as well. What do you think the balance is between having those streaming services but keeping the quality of content? Because we've definitely, without a doubt, streaming services has bought better TV and better Agreed. movies. It's bought Massively. the budget up. You've, I mean, you wouldn't have things like The Mandalorian, Falcon and Winter Soldier, Game of Thrones, Breaking Bad, even though that was originally on TV. That's had its renaissance on Netflix and then Better Call Saul's come because of that. What do you think yeah. the balance between is having so many streaming services to pay for, but also they give us better stuff? <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah. The trouble is, is eventually the market is going to rebel against it. Do you think so? Yes. Because the thing is, everybody wants new content, but my wallet only goes so far. Yeah. There's going to have so, yeah, to be I, a way that people can everything afford Everything is it. finite. Yeah. Everything is finite. It's possible that off the back of this, only one big customer, well, yeah, one big conglomerate will survive as a result of this in the same way that you see multiple movie studios now gone by the wayside that don't exist anymore mm -hmm. because they couldn't keep up with either the technology or the demand. The problem with streaming services is demand. But also, there's the other aspect of, I mean, I look behind me, sort of, just over, sort of, there somewhere. Um, I seven was laughing tonight. because there's no way I could see that at all. That was way off the picture. Over there. Trust me. I'll send you a picture I trust later. you. I trust you. Um, hang on. That I have plenty of DVDs, Blu-rays, all that kind of stuff. Any HD DVDs? Oh yes, I've got those. You've got as well. HD I've got, DVDs. I've got a 4K. I've got a 4K Blu-ray player. Oh, I don't mean 4K Blu-ray because obviously 4K Blu-rays are amazing. But don't, don't you remember yeah. the HD DVD that was going up against the original Blu-ray? Yes, I do. The, don't, do you, I, no, I don't have any of those. I went oh, blue. That is a shame because they are relics. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they, they are, are beautiful pieces of technology. So, so am I. So am I. I'm a relic <laughs> as well. But, um, but the point is, is that I own those, mm, and I can watch definitely. them anytime I want. With a streaming service, it's only available as long as they make it available to you. Even buying it, I've realized, because I buy a lot of films yeah. on Amazon if it's not in a streaming service. As if Amazon decide one day that I don't own yeah. that, then I don't own it, even though I've paid for it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I don't have that problem with um, with uh, DVDs and uh, so, so, you know, even films that come out recently. Do you still regularly recently. buy physical content then? Yes. I mean, you know, I've got like Iron Man 1, 2, and 3, Thor... All the rest of it, all the uh, um, all the Star Wars stuff. Yeah, basically. This is what because... I love about. I think the 4K Blu-ray is is the last savior of physical media for watching stuff. Because, I mean, the 4K Blu-ray is better than any sort of 4K stream thing that we have mm. so far. And I mean, yes, it's more expensive, but it it's the only physical media that I would say. In terms of your actual viewing quality, obviously there's things like you say, you actually own it. But in terms of visual quality, the 4K Blu-ray is the only bit of physical media, I think, left that is better than a streaming service and actually worth getting over a streaming service. Not only that, but on 90% of the streaming services, you don't get the extras that come with it. The commentaries, the making yep, of, all that kind of stuff, which is the kind of stuff I really love. I mean, just think, uh, you watch a film, you watch one of the Lord of the Rings. How much are you missing by not watching the appendices? Well, I, I mean, 
like the amount of content that's been put online from behind the scenes and stuff for Lord of the Rings is immense. And I, as yeah. soon as I move flat, I have got in my basket on Amazon 4K a Blu-ray Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I yeah, buy then. <laughs> yeah. I'm tempted. I'm very tempted to do that myself, you know. Mm. But then, yeah, it's just the thing is, I don't want a streaming service to be able to dictate to me when I can watch something and when I can't. Yeah, because they're always taking things on and off and stuff like that. Yeah, they'll always. But then you also find films that you haven't seen for ages, hmm. which is wonderful, you know, and it gets you, it, it also allows you, especially with Amazon Prime, you get all sorts of films included and then you get to watch films you may never have considered before. And so watch a film that becomes a pleasant surprise to you. Yeah. And so, you know, increases your, the vista of which you watch films and enjoy them and, you know, try films that you wouldn't necessarily uh, normally watch. I mean, I, I, I still think that Downfall is probably one of the best German Brilliant films movie. ever made. Absolutely incredible. I mean, it was a bit and, of, I think I've seen the actor in an interview is like, I mean, it's a shame how much of a meme it became, but I'm still yeah. happy with my performance. <laughs> But holy crap, what a performance and half that was. Bruno Gantz, his name was. Mm. Um, and that was just phenomenally good. Absolutely phenomenally good. But I also, I'm the kind of stuff, I don't want to watch it with, without listening to the native language. Because for me, that's part of it. Obviously, for the, the streaming platforms have created so much in content, they have really started to push Hollywood to do better, to be better, I think. Mm -hmm. um you know hollywood was never felt under pressure from tv that it has now because obviously with a tv series you can over a course of you know however many episodes you're going to do you can dive deep into the characters deep into the storyline that you could never normally do in a film and have it satisfying you mm -hmm. know yeah i mean you mentioned that there is going to be, we're going to find that there's going to be one winner out of all the streaming services. And I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I I think some will start to drop off, but it, it depends if there's going to be one or two at the top. Who do you think out of the streaming service do you think can survive this sort of battle? Because there's you've got the ones, like the only American ones, like Peacock and CBS All Access, that mm -hmm. I think is a given they're going to go at eventually. Yeah. I think Netflix was the first, and I think it might be the last. Part of the problem that Netflix has also had is with respect to the uh, comms companies. Mm. So, for example, in the case of Netflix, they had to fork over something like, I think, 1% or 2% of their income as a result of using a particular uh, comms company to stream their software over or stream the videos over. And so because they were noticing such a massive spike on the usages of their lines, they wanted to cut in to the amount of money that uh, Netflix was making. And so they and basically they blackmailed Netflix to do that by essentially um, throttling their bandwidth to Netflix across their lines until Netflix agreed to do it. <laughs> so you've got that kind of very self-centered and uh, attitude to it with respect to the streaming platforms. But I think at least unlike, you know, um, blockbuster video, Netflix, I think will continue to keep up with the trends and they were a trendsetter. And as long as they continue to push that, 
I think they stand the best chance because they have become a one place it fits all. That's I kind of agree, but what do you think about their backing though? Because that's all they do. If streaming goes, if the stream starts to die, they're gone. But Disney, I mean, Disney's Disney. Yeah, true. But the thing is, it's the way I see it. It's okay. Streaming streams gone, but until until such times as we blow up the earth and we've got no internet, somebody's <laughs> always going to be able to want to watch a film in some way or another. Yeah. So I don't think streaming will ever go. It might change how it's streamed to the people. So whether or not it will be streamed into some kind of, you know, glasses system that then projects it directly in front of your face rather than into a television screen and stuff like that. I just think the the ways in which the content will be presented will differ, but the content itself won't massively differ over the course of time, I think. People are always going to want original stories, stuff that isn't Hollywood, stuff that is, isn't afraid to you know, punch you in the face to get your attention, mm. isn't afraid to go a lot cover dark subjects that nobody would normally cover because the the standard channels would you know for fear of losing their audience will shy away from it bbc (laughs) yeah yeah bbc you know itv channel channel four tended to do quite the some of the more questionable stuff you know but the point is is, now that's gone (sighs) yeah exactly but the point is is the fact that unless you have people who are willing to do that stuff that kind of provides a bit more of an edge, a bit kind of non-standard storytelling. I mean, you look at non-standard storytelling, one of my favorite series of all time is Babylon 5. That was a five-year story arc. You know, something that's written over the course of time with a general idea on what's going on, everything that's occurring in that. And those things have become more than just standard episodal. So you've seen, you know, it's it's a story over the course of an entire series. I think I remember the first series that kind of did that in a serious way was called Murder One, uh, where it basically covered a murder and then the build-up to the trial and the eventual trial and the result at the end of the, the whole series. And I remember that well, actually. It was Stephen Bucko, I think his name was, who did things like... Um, uh, NCIS and things of that nature. So, yeah, I think I don't think that the the desire for content will always exist. It's how that content is presented that will change. Yeah, and I mean, with sort of everyone splitting off and doing their own thing, there's a very high chance we're going to go back in a full circle to saying, if you get Disney Plus, you get Netflix now as well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, if you get Amazon, you also get Netflix and Disney Plus with it as well. I mean, it's unlikely, I think, at this point in time because everyone's trying to fight against each other. But if people, like you say, do stop saying, yeah, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not spending more money on that. It could be a possibility. It just goes back to package bundle deals and things like that. Part of that also is the fact that with the cost of living continuing to rise, but wages are not rising accordingly in the same yeah. sort of thing. It means that your your money over the course of time is worth less and less, so you become more focused on what you actually spend it on and remove any extraneous things that you don't actually need. So it means that you will the, the market will automatically peel back to a single few 
people in the market. Yeah. You seem, I don't know. I've always spoken to you about games and things. I've never really mentioned movies with you all that much, but where did you sort of, have you, do you have much experience within the film industry or is it just sort of a side passion sort of thing? It's a side passion mostly. Oh God, choking. <laughs> Sorry, man, I had to cough. Um, I've always been into films big. I'm massively into animation, even as a kid. Mm-hmm. I loved all the Disney animation, all those films, all that kind of stuff. I have a lot of good memories of that. I have a huge interest in film, special effects, all that kind of thing. Loved all the Star Wars, how they made all that kind of stuff. I'm learning a 3D animation program, Maya, which is one of the things that they made um, Transformers with. I see. So, I see. So yeah, a very, you, very, you, Are you very on the next Transformers then? Is that going to be you? Doing no, I wouldn't want to do Transformers. <laughs> I'll be more into the Pixar type of, of character yeah, animation. Definitely. That's the kind of stuff that I love um, and appreciate and just understand how difficult it is to give that feeling of normalcy and just general just smoothness to a characters. I mean, one of the most difficult things to do in CGI at the moment is the human mouth. It's um, really, really difficult. We see that in games as well, which yep. is why there has never been a convincing kiss ever in game mm-hmm. history because it's just smashing together. It, yeah, exactly. But then even if it is, it's because they basically motion captured. Yeah. But then motion capture, the reason they're having to do that is because there's a certain fluidity of mo- movement that human beings have that is very, very hard to animate and look convincing because there's all sorts of little sort of twists and i mean you just you just sit and watch somebody and see how much of their body moves just as a course of just sitting there yeah you know, even reading mm-hmm. a book you know you're thinking about you know do the, the eyes the eyes move do, they, do the ears move you know does the nose twitch every now and then you know how, how is the arm moving in what way is it moving which you know it's it's just stuff like that 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 really interests me and fascinates me with respect to animation i mean i if i could do that for a living i would wouldn't think about it twice i've got several several oh god so many ideas of animation type short films that i would love to do Hmm. that are just sitting in the back of my head that i don't have the means to do it or the know-how to do it have you ever thought about using your youtube to go in conjunction with that, that sort of thing to make animated stuff on youtube yes has that been a is that a route that you're planning on going down, or is that just sort of I I hope to do it someday, but I need to. Get I hope to, to something. do it, but I would love to be able to do it. Hmm. I mean, you just have to look at the population, uh, the population, the popularity <laughs> of um, Lucas the Spider. Yep. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's mad. It's Absolutely but... mad, and it's such beautiful animation, and just such little, little sort of touches that just not give humanity but give a sense of realness to it you know yeah. i mean there are things i've i've got a fantastic book that my parents gave me when i was 10 it was called disney animation the illusion of life and it's it's going of uh, going through all the animation that they did in the 30s and the 40s and all that about how they gave the illusion of life to drawing pencils and things uh um, and how they would give that impression of reality of life to just drawing cartoons which could then also be taken into animation relating to computers one of the advantage of you know animation relating to computers is because you can uh sort of put in inverse kinematics linking you can link the body together so that it operates in the way that a 
human skeleton wood has limitations on it when you're doing the animation to therefore assist you in making it seem more real. I mean, there's also the model making stuff, which they haven't done a lot of, but they did some basic model uh, stuff. If you look on the, uh, the making of the Mandalorian, that the mm -hmm. guy did in his, in his um, shed with a classic black screen and then a motion control camera, which is exactly what they did with the original Star Wars. Yeah. Those motion control where it's literally, it's the model that's moving towards the camera. Sorry, the camera that's moving towards the model to give the impression of flight going past. I mean, you know, you just look at those pictures when you saw the X-Wings uh, crashing into the, uh, the floor of the uh, Death Star when they were doing their bombing runs and all that kind of stuff. That was recorded by a guy sitting on the back of a pickup truck as he drove past <laughs> explosions that were sitting on a table in the middle of a bloody car park. The point <laughs> is, is that, you know, you can put all that kind of stuff together. And I, I love that kind of way that they assemble things. And, and I mean, I used to watch TV series about it. And, yeah, I'd love to get into that sort of animation. I mean, I still think one of the best space battles that I've ever seen in television is the space battle at the end of Deep Space Nine. Mm. I, have, I have not seen... I've never been the biggest Star Trek fan, but... Oh, I love yeah, it. Maybe I've always thought that one day, one day I'll get around to watching it properly, but I'll keep that one in mind. <laughs> well, yeah, like I said, you'll have to come and pay me a visit and we'll sit down and watch them. I'll show you some of the best episodes. Yes, I would love to actually start watching Star Trek for once. <laughs> The thing is, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I mean, some of the ideals that they have in Star Trek are quite um, appealing. Like, for example, no existence of money. Mm. Think, just think about that on a basic concept. If not everybody was basically looking to get more money, what would you do with yourself? Yeah, just, you'd look to, just you'd live. Look to learn new things. You'd look to better yourself. You'd look to enjoy your life. If you didn't have to worry about being fed, you know, having resources available to you, and more importantly, money. But would would a, a world be able to function when people just did what they wanted to do? That's to that's a certain degree. But then that's that's how the that's how life and the the world would change, depending, you know, because as with everything, there are rules, there are laws. Mm -hmm. So that's the way that you would do it. You would put in laws to say you are not permitted to do this, or this is. It's in the same way that um, free speech in America, for example. You have the right to free speech, but you don't have the right to shout fire in a crowded theatre. Mm. You know? Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the thing is, is freedom of speech is one thing. Um, you know, freedom to say whatever you want is a completely different thing, as is with some people are discovering. Freedom to speech does not mean freedom of consequence for what you say. Yeah. But yeah, um, we've only ever talked about games. I could talk about so many other Everything. things for so long. <laughs> like I said, day 43, we're still here. <laughs> well, to be fair, if this if this one, obviously you won't have said everything you want to say by the end of it, but I mean, in, in the future, this, this, I don't want, I don't know, podcast show, I'm hoping to make one day become, once I've moved and I have an actual set, a real life thing, so we can actually like, I'm hoping to like, get people in and have proper shows and stuff like that. And there'll be plenty, be plenty more we can talk about. I'm sure. I mean, oh. talking about sort of with the whole Star Trek thing and what would you do if money wasn't a thing? How have you managed to balance that with your YouTube channel? How, how has it been? You managed to balance passion, but also 
doing stuff what people watch because i find that to be an issue like i would want to just upload how let loose videos men of war videos mm -hmm. all day but as like my last few how let loose videos they just they get like four, five thousand views. And yeah. if I upload a banal video, it gets a hundred thousand views. And like, how have you managed to sort of balance that? Have you just sort of gone, fuck it, I'll just do whatever I want at this point? Or yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, the thing is, is it's a kind of I, I want to get more views, but also not at the not at the expense of my mental health and the enjoying yeah. the games. You know, I want at the moment YouTube is not a job for me; it's a hobby. I have a full time job in IT which keeps me very busy. But for me, YouTube is a sense of escapism. It's something that I enjoy. I want to keep enjoying it. Um, if I have to do it as a job, then I'll do it with the same level of commitment that I would do my current job. But then it's a case of, you know, it's, it's such a... Part of the problem is it's such a... Um, <sighs> It's such an unstable base when yeah. you're talking about making money from YouTube. And it's, I think that has wide implications. I think a lot of people that watch YouTube don't understand where, especially like when you're in the early stages or where you have a smaller channel where you, you're like, I really want to get into this, put all my heart into this and try and make something of this. But I, I just mean, can't afford to. Yeah. The risk is too high and then it has wide implications on mental health because, I mean, even at the relatively small channel size I have compared to the rest of YouTube, if a video flops or there's like 20% dislikes, that's me mm -hmm. done for a few days. I'm just like, I just, yeah. I just can't be bothered to do anything and I'm like, I don't want to upload anymore. And then I'll always pick myself back up, but just... I've tried to push myself away from it. I've I've uninstalled the YouTube Studio app. I find that is the worst possible thing when it has this video has performed ten out of your last ten. I was like, well, what was the point of all that effort? I've uninstalled yeah, that. Like, got yeah, that why away. Not, yeah, exactly. Why not kick me while I'm down? Yeah. yeah also, yeah. And also, when you like get number is... one, there's little fireworks and stuff like that when you do well, and that just like it feels good at the time, but in the long term, it's just screwing it's you over mentally. I find it patronising, to be honest. Yeah. It's like, yay, you've done better than you did last time. It's like, great, okay, whatever. You know, it's. I mean, for me, I I still play games offline. I still there mm. are still games that I play because, also, there's this certain aspect where you want to play but you want to enjoy it. You don't want to have to look at it as to how can I make this game that I am playing entertaining to others and yeah. present it to them in an entertaining way. I just want to have a mindless mass murder, you know, whatever it is I want to do. I want to relax with a quiet session of mass genocide and then just, <laughs> which is when you think about it, what most of the games that we play yeah, is pretty much um, and not have to worry about how do I make it entertaining to people? Because what a lot of people also don't understand is that, I mean, I'm kind of lucky with my commentaries are done live. So it's literally, I just copy one video onto the back of what, because I pause it in between rounds. Okay. So, so I then basically then cut them all together and there you go, you have it. So it's one big broadcast that's like 45 minutes long, but I recorded it all live. I, you know, just pause, record, pause, record, pause, record at the end of each round. Whereas a lot of the videos that you do and a lot of videos that a lot of other big YouTubers do, there's so much more editing that's involved. Mm. I mean, a perfect example is there's a video on my channel that is two and a half minutes long. And it took me six hours to edit it to a point where I was happy with it. 
Yeah. And, and it's, then if it flops, you're like, well, what yeah, was exactly. the point of that? Exactly. And the thing, to a certain degree, it kind of, it frustrates me because it kind of encourages laziness with respect to production of content. I couldn't agree. That is literally why I do the videos that I do now. And it was during the summer, I was, like I mentioned before, I used to script everything. I'd write, have an idea, script it all out. Then I'd record the voiceover. Then I'd write notes of what footage I needed. Then I'd edit it. And it would take like a few days mm -hmm. of like just pure work. There were like yeah. very little breaks. And sometimes it'd get like, uh, like no views compared to like another video that took me a few minutes and it would be so demoralizing. So I was like, in January, I was like, right, I need to find a way of getting around this. So now my way of getting around it is putting honestly less effort into the videos. I'd still mm -hmm. try and find that balance between quality and quantity, but it'll be like, I'll find a game, but I'll pick a game that I know. I'll pick a game that I can talk about for eight to 10 minutes ish yeah. or 50 minutes and edit it down. But it takes away from that feeling of a project. I feel it feel like I I'll sit down, I'll talk about something, whether it's a new update or something, I'll edit it together. It will take me a few hours, but because it doesn't take as long, I'll put it up. If it doesn't do so well, mentally, I'm much better about it. And I think it's been the best cool. way for me to do it. Like for my own sanity, but I, I don't feel like I put, I don't feel like I'm working on a project like I did before, but honestly, I just couldn't, I couldn't get over the fact that I'd be working on these things for 10, 15 hours of video and then they just flop and I'll be like, it would yeah. just be so demoralizing. How have, how have you managed to get around that? Cause I've noticed you've started doing a bit more scripted and more, yeah, yeah. More, almost I, video I, essay stuff. Yeah. I, I, I like the scripted, but also because of what a lot of what my channel has been, has been on off the cuff commentaries. I try not to do too much scripted. I'm still doing commentaries on a regular basis. I I'll always, you know, commentate on a video. Um, if anything, what changed with the uh, the video commentaries is when I started making the historical events a lot more edited. Yeah. So, you know, for example, you know, tell you the story of what's going to happen in the round, you know, sort of pause it so you can understand what was going on, all that kind of stuff. There's so much more that I'd love to do with that. I mean, that's why I keep asking the people on um, totally accurate, accurate uh, battle simulator to please put in a Napoleonic Wars oh, yeah, um, thing, because then what I'd do is I was thinking about doing like, a, okay, right, well, here's the battle, and we're going to do a quick recreation of what just happened <laughs> in totally accurate battle, and it would just be a completely stupid thing. Um, but that kind, of, that kind of thing I would like to do. I mean, I'd love to do more sort of serious films but i just don't have the resources i don't have the uh, at the moment the thing that's really killing me is i'm suffering pretty badly from constant tiredness yeah like constantly just absolutely knackered so like i finished work at 5 30 yesterday by 5 35 i was in bed hmm. and it's been like this for six months maybe 12 months and it doesn't, I haven't managed to find a solution to it yet. And that. Do you feel like that's more like a physical tiredness or more like a mental tiredness sort of thing? I do feel like it's a combination of both. Yeah. Maybe it's just the fact that I'm working from home all the time and I don't get any sort of change of tune with respect to going out. And, you know, it's nice to just go out in the car, just for a drive, you know, let your hair down. <laughs> well, obviously, figuratively speaking, <laughs> rather than literally, but you know what I'm saying. Um, but the point is, is the fact that it's the change of tune, the change of aspect of that kind of thing that's that's missing with this with the situation with the lockdown but 
I mean, another thing is also that it's quite amazing when I've spoken to people when they've tried to do a commentary off the top of their head and they fail. They just, they, they just can't do it. Mm-hmm. And they don't realize how, how difficult it is. But then the thing that's kind of more annoying to them is the fact that I make it look so easy. And they've said that. <laughs> you, make, you make it look so easy to talk about absolutely sod all for 15 seconds while we're waiting for the game to get set up. Yeah. It's just, just stuff that you have off the top of your head. I find editing saves my ass so much, which is why like my videos are so fast paced, like with the audio commentary, because I cut out all the stop stuff. Like I, I, my audio recordings are perhaps 15 minutes and I'll edit it down with all the stutters and everything out. And it's about Mm -hmm. eight minutes, nine minutes. Yeah. One thing I like doing in my, um, in my, uh, in my historical, uh, vids was basically when I was doing it and, I would actually then put in out the outtakes of me trying to record the uh, the, vo- the voiceover. I don't have the balls for that. <laughs> I, I, because to me, I'm just like, yeah, I screw up just as much as everyone else. You know, yeah. everyone, everybody else, you know, it's just like, this is the thing that I had with um, Facebook and to a degree Twitter, but also with Instagram is this fake impression that people give off of their perfect lives. Yeah. When in fact, they're especially just screwed like up. And, and like yeah, yeah. Oh God. Yes. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, we'll swear and, you know, blind like a Scottish world, all these pubes on fire. Everybody does that. <laughs> but the thing is, is that it's edited away so you don't see a large majority of that. But I also find sometimes editing to be a very um, frustrating experience because I know what I would like to be able to do, but I either lack the skills or the footage to shoot it, to get the yeah. information, get the stuff I want to be able to shoot it how I want to shoot it. I think what a lot of... Uh, people don't understand when going into YouTube that the most valuable resource is time. And if mm-hmm. like there's people that spend months on videos that are incredibly high quality, but, and that works for some channels, but if that video doesn't do well and that's their job, then they, yeah. they can't pay the rent that month or something like that. And I think it is time is one of the most valuable things on YouTube. Like you say, if you want to do something, but you either don't have the time to do it or you just can't if like trying to get a video up at a certain time or something like that what would you say sort of in terms of the way that you make videos are you planning on changing anything in the future what would you say the future for your channel is yeah i mean i'd like to do more sort of commentary videos one thing i'd love to be able to do is to uh, to do a series of basically about the films of from my childhood the films that i have the most fondest memories of mm. and talk about those films and why i like them so much and why they appeal to me i mean it's like my favorite film of all time is raiders of the lost ark so much so that i have a copy of it <laughs> on my phone that i like to have watch you watched it much on your phone <laughs> oh god yes is that a if great was, viewing experience Oh, it's an, I love that film so much because there are things in there that interest me. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a stuntman. Thought you were about to say so you wanted to be a Nazi then, and that was what no, you no, 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 no. I wanted to wear a fedora, uh, but no, I wanted to be a stuntman, and I loved it. I was all that kind of stuff. Like, for example, going under the truck. Mm. That was done originally by a um, a, a um, I can't remember what uh, nationality he was. He might have been Hawaiian, but a guy called Yakima Kunut, who is a legend in the stunt series. Yeah. Um, and to the point where he was riding, he would literally jump along the along the bars that the horses were riding on 
then like got shot by John Wayne. He fell down in between the horses, holding onto the the bar as all these horses are galloping next to him, then lets go of the bar and goes underneath. I think I've seen that. Yeah, that's that's from John Wayne, uh, John uh, John Ford's or John Wayne stagecoach, mm. and that's that's a famous famous. Um, Stuntman. Another stuntman, for example, Dar Robinson did an amazing fall off the top of the CN Tower, you know, like 1,000 feet. Absolutely You, you would almost in. call these stuntmen that were in, like, the 60s, 70s sort of time, even earlier. Well, especially around the times of, like, early films, silent films, where you couldn't have audio that was exciting. It had to be the visual, so you had to do stunts like this. They would all... I, I would call them more daredevils and stuntmen for most yeah. of it. Well, even even the actors did it themselves. Charlie Chaplin, for example, yeah. another one who did it themselves. It's I was that a famous fan one of, of on the on the clock tower. Howard, sort of Howard Lloyd. Yeah, I used to watch Howard Lloyd all the time as a kid. Loved it. You know, those kind of things is where all you see is what's in front of the camera. You don't see what's underneath it. Yeah. But then you have things like, for example, where they put miniatures in front of the camera, stay so it looks like it's a tall building. <laughs> when in fact it's not it's just under a platform but the miniature hides it because of where they position it on the camera yeah. that kind of stuff is the kind of stuff that they did with things like the bigotures in lord of the rings so that yep. kind of not it's not technology but techniques with respect to filmmaking have made their way through that entire series all the way through to being used just in a different way to achieve the same look that's done and has been done since, you know, the 50s and 60s and 30s, in fact, I think Howard Lloyd was. I mean, I used to watch black and white TV series for Flash Gordon and Zorro, which was my personal favorite, was Zorro. In fact, I actually do have memories of running around as a seven-year-old with a little mask on and a hat and a plastic sword <laughs> as Zorro. I loved it. That kind of stuff. I mean, you know, that kind of, I, I, I will say, if I had... If money was no object, I didn't have to worry about, you know, paying for the you know, future and all that. I would look to becoming a film director. Yeah. Because there be, are so many Would it stories. be those old classic inspired movies that you'd go for then? No, I'd, I'd, lo I'd love to do sci-fi. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I like sci-fi. I like sort of historical type stuff. Um, you know, for me, showing, showing the... Um, Things like, for example, I would want to do Napoleonic Wars, but done in such a way of the first 20 minutes of uh, Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, that would, I think that's something that's definitely gone amiss. Uh, I would say in terms of like historical epics, they've sort of, I mean, the early 2000s, there was so many of them, you know, Troy, Alexander, mm -hmm. 300, whatever. And I feel like it's really I don't know what it is. Maybe it is the the big budget sort of with people, but surely it'd just be replaced with CGI now. But no one really seems to want to go back to those historical epics. You get some every yeah. now and then, but there's, it's not really the same. I think the difference also is 300 was really predominantly shot on blue screen. Yeah. You know, a few rocks here and there and stuff like that. And most of it was done in CGI. And, yeah, a few elephants <laughs> and set extensions and things of that nature. But the thing is, if the... If the canvas you're painting on is broad enough, then you can do anything, really. I mean, there are. I would love to do a film about the battle, uh, the uh, battle to sink the Bismarck. 
I'd love to do a film about that. Um, various other films where, you know, I love films with twists in them. Um, have you seen a film called No Way Out? No, I haven't. No. Okay, look for it. It's starring Kevin Costner. Okay. One of my favorite films. Uh, for free to watch that with your family and friends. It is family and friendly, sort of. But <laughs> it's entertaining as hell. It is really, really good. It's like a political thriller type thing. All right. And that's like 1985, I think. Hmm. But the thing, the thing that's kind of nice in a lot of ways is that as you get older, you get to show younger people like yourself, which is true. You are younger. <laughs> um, even though lighting might be lying right now. Um, <laughs> so rude. <laughs> <laughs> is, is the fact that you get to uh, show films that you remember from your youth and that are absolutely amazing that you may never have seen. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're probably looking back at films like Goodfellas and then uh, Mean Streets, the classic Robert De Niro film from the 70s. There was something about, oh, the, um, if you've never seen it, uh, for everyone out there, look for the car chase from the French Connection. That is probably that, regarded yeah. as one of the best in the business yeah just absolutely amazing i remember stuff. and i didn't really like acknowledge it much back then but as i when i was growing up when i was like 10 11 12 years so old last week thing yeah so last week yeah it, this was a good two months ago uh when i went to high school uh but my but my parents they did i remember every sunday we'd watch an old world war ii movie and it would be like uh, bridge over the river Kwai, a bridge yeah. too far that sort of thing where eagles dare and things like that and oh, i'm so wow. glad looking back that i did watch them because especially when i came to uni and you meet so many people from different backgrounds and there's so like this time period almost didn't exist in their mind sort of not just like uh, there's especially a, a sort of a lack of knowledge about history and world war ii and how it happened but also just after that, when these films were made, when they still had all the World War Two tanks and vehicles and equipment and stuff, it was like, wait, is that actually a Spitfire? And I'm like, yeah, 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 that is a Spitfire and things like it's that. It's an actual Spitfire, yeah, exactly. I mean, there, there are films like that. I mean, um, obviously, Where Eagles Dare, incredible, incredible film. Um, and there was uh, some other ones like um, On the Life of Douglas Bader, which I remember watching mm -hmm. as a kid. Um, various other films, The Cruel Sea, which is really, really good. Uh, and that's another one from uh, that sort of period, black and white. And it's quite, quite in, uh, mo uh, sort of uh, psychologically intense film, The Cruel Sea, I have to say, for the period when it was made. Yeah. It's really, really good. I also have fond memories of watching, because I was always big into Sherlock Holmes. I've still got somewhere the original book that I was given as a kid. I used to read Sherlock Holmes from like the age of 10 onwards. <laughs> with like reading the book and then with a dictionary next to me because there were some words that I couldn't understand and so I had to look them up in the dictionary. You should have seen the look on my mum's <laughs> face when I came to her at 10 years old and managed to get a sentence in that used the word superfluous. <laughs> she just looked at me just like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> but I've always been big into Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. And I used to watch a guy called Basil Rathbone who was like one of the original Sherlock Holmes when film was around. And some of those old films I've got on a hard drive now so I can watch them and be nostalgic. I like the new Sherlock Holmes, but I still think the best Sherlock Holmes was a gentleman called Jeremy Brett, who embodied 
embodied it. And it was just that kind of storytelling, that kind of stuff I've always enjoyed. You know, like there are so many stories that are out there waiting to be told. You just have to find a way to tell them. I mean, my personal favorite writer is the man who wrote The West Wing, Aaron Sorkin. Just spectacularly brilliant. But also, he really struggles to write sometimes. You know, writer's block can really do a number on him. <laughs> but then, you know, it's that just the, the thing. Best, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've done, I've done multiple films for, for people. I've worked with people with um, a film uh, did what I was literally the cameraman. So doing all the camera and uh, I've also obviously done events at um, big gaming events and things of that nature where I've run the camera for where they had uh, Red Eye and uh, Joe on the, on the, on the, in the thing in front of the GoldenEye tank, which was just <laughs> surreal, <laughs> but fantastic. And no, it wasn't Red Eye. It was actually with Warwich. So it's Warwich and Joe in front of the tank. But I've also worked with Red Eye as well when I was using my Steadicam at the uh, Gadget show. And so I'm big into the whole camera side of things. I love the Steadicam and all the kind of things that you can do with that. And it's just, there are so many ways to tell a story, which is why, I, I for me, spectator mode in a game is so important. It's so yeah. important for me. Because you know, it gives definitely a unique angle. And going back to like your early Napoleonic Wars, I think that's why people were drawn to your channel because no one had done that in Napoleonic Wars or Mountain Blade before. And that's why you have that native battle with so many views. Because I think people had probably recorded themselves playing in those battles, but it gives it a, such a huge perspective on it when you're yeah. zoomed out and you can see lines in the distance and things like that. And I think. Yeah, going back to Bannerlord, I think if that spectator mode is so crucial to growing that feel. I won't lie. I wish the spectator mode was like the one that you have in Counter-Strike where you can record a demo hmm. and then you just play it back in the engine. And then when you play it back in the engine, you can position the camera anywhere during the course of those events and then record anything that happens during the course there of that battle. There is potentially that coming to Bannerlord, though, with their, yes. their replay mode. Whether it's going to be full, like yeah, I they don't can know. do full events or just small clips, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But if they can if they can do it like I'm thinking, it means my videos will take probably a week to make. <laughs> but they'll be amazing because it will oh look, you get God. so many angles and things. I can't exactly, wait you know. Like I mean, like classic moments where... I mean, uh, I've had moments where I've tried to get the camera right in and you can literally get the slash over the top of the camera. You know, <laughs> just those kind of shots. I mean, when I used to do parkour with uh, the lads up in Chelmsford, I used to love getting shots where you'd where they jump from thing to thing and I would actually be underneath the thing and you see them just come flying through the air and just <laughs> land straight on top of it. And it looked so amazing. It, absolutely fantastic. And I, I have an eye for camera angles. In fact, when I did one on, um, when I was working with Gfinity, I actually found that in the case of certain players, they were playing um, oh, StarCraft Two. Yeah. If they had glasses on, I could actually get the camera over the top of the monitor and I zoomed in far enough. And if I got the right angle, I could get the reflection of the game that they were playing in their glasses <laughs> that you would see in the camera. <laughs> And I remember two of the commentators and they're like, whoa, look at that. Never seen that before. 
because then you could see the game and what his eyes were flicking and focusing on. Yeah. It was just, and that became known as the signature Chad shot. Give us a signature Chad shot. (laughs) There it was, you know, but it also meant that it was difficult because when a camera is zoomed out, you know, any movement sort of one millimeter, one millimeter, when the camera zoomed all the way in one millimeter of movement would mean 10, 15 millimeters. So obviously I had advantageous belly to rest it on that made it a little bit easier, (laughs) but it's, these are the kind of things that I look for, the kind of, kind of shots i mean when i've done little sort of trailers and stuff like that i've done shots where you see you know somebody get murdered at the top of the ladder and i've got the camera right down at the bottom as the as the body just goes thud in front of the camera stuff like that you know would you put would you say when you're trying to cast let's take a normal napoleonic war siege for example when you're casting that and you go into it are you putting more priority on the words you say with your audio or trying to get the shots first and then putting the words to the shots you're making it's the second part, yeah. I yeah. look for the shots, I look for the action that is occurring and then commentate on what I see in the moment, essentially. Um, it's a case of, you know, I look to see where the battles are occurring, I look to see where the punch-ups are occurring and then I focus my attention on that. If I see a lot of people moving in one location or I see a lot of people moving in another direction, um, then I can focus on that. Part of the advantage of not streaming it means that people can't watch it and then get a stream snipe and get an advantage. It yeah. means that nobody can see what I'm focusing on until two days after the line battle or the event or anything like that. And for me, sometimes getting the, getting the right shot is quite important because it just plays into a nice moment that you can, you can get when the players are playing together and, and stuff like that. And stupid moments as well that always occur in the Polonic Wars, um, you know, where you'll just see a, a mass punch up uh, between people while they're resting between uh, rounds and things like that. So I'll sometimes unpause the recording if I see something happening to then put it in as a little bit of a blip outtake or something like that, <laughs> just to show the silliness that occurs. But for me, yeah, the camera, the camera leads what's going on on the battle, what gets my attention. I then commentate on what I see, but I also try and pull it out sometimes to kind of show the overall battle. That's part of the problem that Mountain Blade Warband uh, has is it doesn't really show the movement of the regiments together. Yeah. That would be a nice thing to be able to see. So you can see a movement of the reg- regiments, how they're moving in relation to each other. And so therefore the strategy that they might start employing, because what you want to be able to do as a commentator is to not only describe what you see, but also then describe what you think they're going to do. Yeah. And more important, why you think they're going to do it. Would you say then with your, so you mentioned experience of filming live events, in sort of with esports and things like that, it's pretty much the same thing as casting a mountain blade battle or an online battle. You are doing the camera work for that, even if it's in the game. Would did that come and help you when it came to doing in-game casting them? Yeah, because you you kind of look for the sort of cinematic moments, the the moments of action. You know, sometimes if you you want to get in close to the action to uh you know to show the back and forth of the battle and stuff sometimes you want to remain outside if they're still in a big line once it starts to get down to a smaller line and they're more likely to go into melee then you can focus on getting closer but i also like to mention all the names because obviously i have a reputation for hideously brutalizing people's <laughs> names and so that's part of the fun of it as well see how badly i can pronounce some of these I names remember i remember mean, there was a guy in my artillery regiment who i was a friend with in real life i went to school with him and he was called bombardier boho <laughs> and i think 
I remember one of the first times I was in one of your videos was I was the 16th uh, captain leader and you zoomed in on our artillery regiment and you're like, oh, it's Bombardier Boohoo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've talked to the uh, the guys that are in the VA guard and so the, the guys in the VA guard are all French. Uh, they like to tease me, but they say that uh, my pronunciations of their names cause them physical pain. <laughs> well, that's what you're going to do to the French. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, as, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, they're great guys. They, they all, you know, they always supported, enjoy my videos and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I always try and say nice things about them when I see them, even though normally it's about 30 seconds before they all get wiped out by a cannonball. But, you know. That's not your fault. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's something life, that also becomes known as commentator's curse. I've yeah, seen that a lot. It's, you you so spectate someone, bang, dead. <laughs> dead yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's hysterical. If it wasn't so annoying, because it's like I'm trying to focus on something. God damn it! Please stay alive. Yeah, but you know, it's. I think, I think my experience with the camera just informs me and makes it easier for me to find certain what would be regarded as cinematic moments, moments of entertainment, silly moments you know, closing melee moments, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, quickly before we uh, finish this off, I just want to want you to uh, give a, a quick talk to the audience about almost like a promotional spot. What What are you doing on your channel these days? What What will they find if they come over? If they come over, they will find a lot of Evil Genius 2, which is... I can uh, see your box in the background, actually. There. I was oh, about yes. yes. Got the, is, is, that, is that the collector's edition? It is, yes. That is the collector's edition over there. <laughs> that is uh, Maximilian, who I'm playing a series with at the moment. Um, and that's a regular series that's going out three times a week. And uh, there are other videos that are coming, and but it's mostly uh, Evil Genius 2. But you can look back at the <sighs> two and a half thousand videos that are on my channel. Um, from, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was a period when I first started that I did a video a day for three years. Wow. I've done a video a day for two months and it's taken it's, its time. <laughs> so, yeah. Three. This is why I've got no hair. So, yeah, you're not far behind. <laughs> Maybe I need to work. stop. Maybe yeah, yeah, exactly. Keep it while you've still got a fringe. <laughs> but, um, so, yeah, you'll see all sorts of things on there commentaries, old, uh, old games. You know, you can look at uh, the likes of Rome 2, Napoleon Total War look back at some of the series relating to that um and obviously lots of commentaries on both native and uh, napoleonic wars commentaries and also there's some battlefield 4 stuff on there as well it's safe to say you've got a backlog that (laughs) if people necessarily aren't involved in evil genies and that sort of thing there's gonna be something (laughs) oh yes Well, thank you very much for coming. As I mentioned, once uh, finally not in lockdown at all, and if I can get this set up as a, a proper thing, it'll be great to have you back on again and have like an in-person chat conversation. That would be very cool. That'd be good. But other than that, thank you so much for coming on. It's been great. It's been a good to chat to you about stuff that isn't just games or playing stuff like Stick Fight with you. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry, but punching you in the face on stick fight is probably one of the most rewarding experiences I've ever had in my entire life. Strangely enough, you're not the only person that said that, which is maybe. (laughs) Yeah, it only gets bad when your girlfriend starts to say that. (laughs) Luckily, she doesn't know about that game yet. Oh, that's all right then. Keeping her out of the game stuff, because otherwise she'll start to take her anger out. That's, 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 I've seen that happen. I've played games with entire families who used to play games together. 
Um, I, I know multiple friends who have said who got their game into girl, uh, got their girl into gaming as opposed to game into girling. Um, <laughs> uh, basically, and then couldn't get back on their PC because she was always on there playing games. So yeah, yeah. we'll say we'll it's stay a dangerous away from road. That. But thank you very much for coming on. I hope everybody has enjoyed this uh, podcast. If you haven't already, go and check out Chadtopia. You're on, of course, YouTube. You are you still streaming mm-hmm. on Twitch, or are you streaming mostly on YouTube? Yes, now? also on Twitch. Okay, well, on Twitch as well. Same thing, yes. And uh, yeah, but other than that, thank you for watching, and I'll see you guys next time. Goodbye.